Uh, Let's pray together before we dive in. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word. That word has been sung. That word has been prayed. That word has been experienced in fellowship and Christian warmth. Uh, Father, thank you for that word planted in us already this morning. May it bear fruit. 30, 60, 100 fold, even in this moment, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you bear fruit in us as we root ourselves in this word, as we hear it, as we soften our hearts to receive it. Help me to deliver it faithfully, with clarity, with faithfulness, so that you and you alone would be exalted. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20 is where we're going to spend our time today. It was New Year's Day in 1929, and the Rose Bowl football game that year was played between Georgia Tech and the University of California. In the first half of the game, Georgia Tech has the football, and they're driving towards their end zone. Their running back takes the ball, gets hit, and he dropped the ball. He fumbled it. And a Cal defensive player named Roy Regals picked up the fumble, got confused, and ran the wrong way. Almost 70 yards in the wrong direction before one of his own players caught up to him and told him, stop, that's not right. Roy turned around just before he got to the end zone and he got tackled there. And he's just devastated by what had happened. Cal had the ball. Technically, he had recovered the football but then they, uh, they went three downs, and they weren't able to get a first down, and they had to punt. And then when they went to punt, Georgia Tech blocked the punt and recovered it for a safety. That was two points for the other team. At halftime, Roy and the rest of his Cal teammates were in the locker room. Roy's just devastated by this. He's by himself off in a corner crying. And when it's time to go back out for the second half, his coach said very pointedly, Everyone who started the first half will start the second half. That means Roy included. Everyone gets up, they run out, but Roy stayed seated in the locker room. And his coach went over to him and he said, Roy, didn't you hear me? It's time to go. And Roy said, I can't. I've let you down. I've let the team down. I've failed. I can't possibly go back out. And his coach put a hand on his shoulder and just simply said, Roy, the game's only half over you got to go. So Roy got up, went back out onto the field, played a brilliant second half on defense. He blocked a punt at one point. Ultimately, it was not enough. Uh, Georgia Tech beat Cal by one point, just one point. But the reason the story gets told over and over still this many years later is because of Roy's strength to pick himself up, to go back out the second half, and to work hard in the face of this tremendous mistake. But he couldn't have done that if he didn't have a coach who with simple words and a pat on the shoulder encouraged him to get up and go out. Today, Roy is affectionately remembered as Wrong Way Roy. Isn't that <laughs> well, that's a sad nickname to bear? I've had worse. You probably have too. But the highlight of the story for me is on the coach who saw his sad and discouraged player, picked him up, dusted him off, and put him back out on the field to go again. It's 
likewise easy for Christians to get discouraged. It's easy for us to look at situations we're facing or situations we've caused through our mistakes and to get discouraged. It's easy for us to be let down or to think poorly of ourselves or be ashamed of our actions, to be paralyzed by guilt, to be stopped in our tracks with discouragement because of the situations around us. That was certainly true for Jesus' disciples as well. You know, we might have these romantic notions of how awesome it would have been to be one of Jesus' disciples in these few years of his earthly ministry. And I think, yeah, it would have been amazing. But time and again, these guys have to endure all the hostility and all the opposition that Jesus faces. They're right there present when the leaders of the religious world, the Jewish religious world, are speaking against Jesus, calling him demon-possessed, an agent of Satan. And then they got to go eat food and drink drink with Jesus and listen to his teaching. And everywhere they go, there's these problems that arise. I think what's true for us today and was true for Jesus' disciples was also true for Mark's original audience for whom this gospel was written. Christians persecuted. Christians tempted to leave the faith in favor of worldly pursuits. Christians who are asking, is it really worth it to stick with this? Look at all that we're going through. So, what we have in front of us today in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, is a parable that is meant to encourage tired disciples. It's meant to lift the spirits of those who feel like the world is winning and the gospel is losing its power. And so my purpose in preaching the parable of the sower today is to instill in you a rock-solid confidence in the power and victory of Jesus Christ regardless of the circumstances. Whether it's a circumstance, a conflict that comes from outside or it's because of a mistake you've made and you've created the mess, regardless of the situation, if we study this passage right, we walk away with this incredible confidence in our God who never fails. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Mark, who's always careful to give us the setting, puts us in a familiar place. If you've been walking through Mark with us, you'll recognize this location easily. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, Listen. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, 
let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like the seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even a hundred times what was sown. This is a parable for weary disciples. And so I hope to encourage your heart this morning. I want to show you three reasons from this parable why God's people ought to be ever encouraged, always confident in the work the Lord has given us. Three reasons for God's people to be encouraged. If you're taking notes, first of all, God's word is never silenced. God's word is never silenced. This is a reason for God's people to be encouraged. Now, we're going to spend our time this morning on the second half of the parable, primarily where Jesus explains the meaning of the parable. So it'll help us if we take a moment to identify the different people represented in the story Jesus tells. So he gives us the answers. First of all, the farmer or the sower in the parable is God. The seed that the farmer is planting Well, that's the Word. It's the Word about Jesus. It is Jesus. It's representative of His inbreaking into creation to bring redemption. The bad soils we're told about, just in general, they represent those who are not followers of Jesus. And the good soil with its different yields represents believers, those who are following Jesus. And it'll help us to also pinpoint again the, the parable's purpose. What's it intended to achieve? Uh, many times I've heard this parable preached. You have too. And perhaps it's been a call to evangelism. And for sure there's a call to evangelism in this parable, but that's not its primary purpose. Or maybe you've heard it preached so that you should identify which type of soil you are. I think that's a good practice. You should definitely do that this morning. We're going to do a bit of that ourselves, but that's, again, not the primary purpose of the parable. When it comes to interpreting parables, it's helpful for you and I as Bible readers to first interpret it in light of its context. What's going on around the parable when Jesus gives it? Well, if you were with us last week, at the end of chapter 3, Jesus faces two high-intensity conflict scenes. One is religious leaders from Jerusalem have come to find him in Galilee to tell him, you're demon-possessed. You do your works by the power of Satan. 
And then also, Jesus has some intense conflict with his own family. Either they say or are motivated by a report that says Jesus is insane. So here's Jesus facing these intense moments of opposition and rejection. And he responds with this parable. What's the point of the parable in its context? I'm saying the point of the parable is to encourage embattled disciples. It's to lift people who are are living in the face of opposition and their faith is fracturing or they're asking questions. uh, How much longer does this have to go on? Or they're wondering, is there any hope for me? I've created the mess in the first place. So here's Jesus responding to accusations that he's insane, that he's demon-possessed, that he's a Sabbath breaker, that he's a glutton and a drunkard, that he's a friend of sinners. And what does Jesus say in response? A farmer plants his seed. Some of it is destroyed, but then a lot of it yields this miraculous harvest. He responds with this story to keep his disciples confident, encouraged, sure of those things that do not change. And one of those things is that the Word of God is never, never silenced. Throughout Scripture, God's people have a common experience. We will see a scene of conflict followed by a pronouncement of God's Word. Faithfulness in conflict is always followed by some word of God, from God, about God. Let me give you a few examples. You remember in the book of Exodus, the conflict at the Red Sea. Moses is faithful to raise his staff and his arms. The waters part as God said they would. Israel crosses on dry ground. And then Pharaoh's armies are swallowed up when the water comes back together. Conflict at the Red Sea is followed by what? The Word of God given at Sinai. Conflict followed by Word. Conflict happens and the Word is planted. In Judges chapter 4, the prophetess and leader of Israel, Deborah, is faithful to rally leadership and the armies of Israel against enemy nations that have invaded her borders. Deborah's faithful in the face of that conflict. That's Judges chapter 4. You know what Judges chapter 5 is called? Deborah's song. The word of God proclaimed again. Conflict followed by the word. The word is planted. When David faces down the champion from Gath in the valley, before he throws the rock at his forehead, he says, here's what's going to happen after I kill you. I'm going to chop off your head. And then the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Conflict followed by proclamation. The word is planted. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were faithful in the furnace. The result was they walked out of the furnace and King Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Conflict, proclamation, the word is planted. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and beaten for preaching the name of Jesus. They were then threatened by the religious authorities and commanded not to speak the name anymore. And what was their response? In Acts chapter 4, verse 20, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Conflict, 
proclamation, the word is planted. Four years ago, a friend of mine and Melissa's named Jenny died after a prolonged illness, leaving behind her husband and her seven young children. And on the day of her funeral, her husband stood in a sanctuary that was too small for the crowd that assembled. And he spoke of God's enduring faithfulness. Conflict. Proclamation. The word is planted. In this parable, Jesus shows us the normal pattern of things. The world rages and the farmer plants the seed. So I wonder if God is creating a testimony of his goodness in your life right now. Christian, if you are in conflict today, be faithful Cling to the promises of God's word. Trust in his unfailing character and proclaim the goodness of your God. You're going through some sickness, then resolve that every doctor and every nurse will hear of Jesus Christ from you. You proclaim the word. You got struggles with your kids? Remain faithful to the word and plant the word in your kids. Resolve that if they know anything, they're going to know the love of Jesus Christ from their mom and their dad. Whatever the crisis is, resolve that every time you tell the story, you're going to shine the light on Jesus Christ because God's word is never silenced. Whether a situation from outside or a situation you've created yourself, God's word is Never silence. The farmer plants the seed. There's good news and strength for God's embattled people. There's another reason for us to be encouraged from this parable. One is that God's word is never silenced. Two, God's word is grace to the lost. God's word is grace to the lost. Verses 15 through 19. That's where we'll focus. So in the parable, as Jesus explains the different parts of it, to the disciples and his followers. He identifies three dangers that destroy the seeds. First of all, he talks about the seed that's scattered on a walking path. It's hard, packed soil. The seed just sits on the surface. And that seed's eaten by birds. So in Jesus' explanation, these birds represent Satan. The second, bad soil. The seed is is cast onto a rocky place. Anyone around here familiar with rocky soil? Yeah. This is for Massachusetts. So the seed falls on rocky soil. It's got just enough soil on the surface to spring up. But then when the intensity of the sun comes, it doesn't have enough root to withstand it. It just it withers away. So Jesus describes these types of people as as people who hear the word, they receive it gladly with joy. But then the word that brought joy is the same word that brings persecution. Did you see that in the text? They're persecuted because of the word. And because of that, they quickly fall away. The third bad soil, well, it's seed that falls in a thorny place. And that seed is, is choked out by the, or that plant is choked out by the thorns. Jesus describes it this way. He says that these are those people who hear the word, they accept it, 
but then they are wooed by worldly desires. So those worldly desires choke out the seed, kills the plant. So these three seeds, who do they represent? A lot of times there might be discussion about who among them represents saved people or not saved people. Here's what all three have in common. They are fruitless. They do not yield a harvest. If you try to pinpoint this person saved or this one was saved here and now they're not saved anymore, you miss the point of Jesus' teaching entirely. All three are fruitless, and fruitlessness in covenant with God is is a major, major problem. These are not soils that should reflect and will not reflect God's people. Fruitless seeds, fruitless plants are, are not in line with whom God has created us and called us to be. So Jesus has described these dangers that destroy the seeds. You've got Satan, you've got persecution, you've got desires of the world. And look, in this, I think, is a gracious warning from Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I I wonder if maybe you might be able to identify yourself in one of these three different soils. You may not realize that there is an enemy who hates you and wants to destroy you. And he'll do everything in his power to convince you that all of this is narrow-minded silliness. He'll do everything in his power to convince you that maybe you can pull some good moral direction from Christianity, but there's no more commitment needed than that. Maybe he will convince you that it's enough that your spouse is the active one or you're just doing good enough to get your kids here or something like that. There's any number of lies that in our twisted brains can seem like logic, can seem to make sense, and excuse our lack of commitment. He lies to you and tells you you're fine, but you're not. You've been deceived. You're the first soil. It could be that you're not a follower of Jesus because of the pressure and objection of others. We talked a little bit about this last week when it comes to our family or friends. You know, most likely you haven't faced real persecution, but your family and friends still can present a real challenge. And so you've said no to Jesus in order to keep the peace. You're the second soil. Or it could be you're just in love with what the Bible calls worldly desires. You live your life according to your appetites. I'm glad you're here this morning, but a true examination of your life shows that you spend on what you want, whether you've got the stuff to spend or not. And you find your joy and your contentment in things, in houses, in cars, in whatever it is that your appetites want. You're the third soil. And you might say, "Eh, this doesn't seem very nice. But following Jesus is demanding. And it's going to expose all the garbage that we've given our lives to previously. The demands of discipleship turn people away even in Jesus' day. People come to him for miracles or for bread, and then they hear what he says, they take off. They don't want anything to do with that. In John chapter 6, we're told a whole bunch of disciples quit following Jesus because of the intensity of his teaching. They can't handle it. So the command to take up your cross and follow Jesus is a costly one. But if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to live for something other than appetites. You're You're going to have to risk upsetting your family in order to love them best. You're going to have to recognize Satan's lies for what they are. 
And then when you turn to Jesus in faith and trust him for your salvation, you're going to find that what you have left behind pales in comparison to the abundant life that's yours in Jesus Christ. There's another scene of God's grace in this parable, in the explanation Jesus gives. Right in the middle of our passage, Jesus is asked by his disciples, why do you teach in parables? They're not getting the instruction here. And so Jesus gives them an explanation. Look at verse 11. He gives them two reasons. First of all, he told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. So in other words, he teaches in parables because the secret of the kingdom of God given to you, you have understanding and knowledge. The parables feed your understanding and your faith. There's another side to that coin, though, at the end of verse 11. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. That doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? But we need to take some time to make sense of this quote Jesus gives us from Isaiah chapter 6. We've got to interpret this in light of the context of Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah 5 and 6, there is an allegory of a vineyard. And in that vineyard, God is the vineyard owner. Israel is the vineyard. And Israel has not been fruitful. In other words, they've broken covenant faithfulness with God. And as a result, the vineyard owner is going to bring judgment on the vineyard. He's going to let outside enemies in to the vineyard to work his judgment. So there's a negative function in this parable that Jesus, in his explanation of the parable, a negative function of the allegory from Isaiah chapters 5 and 6. God is bringing judgment on people who have turned away from him. Israel has rejected God, therefore God will use their rejection to accomplish his purposes. Since they haven't produced fruit, God's removing the wall of protection. He's going to allow the Assyrian army to act as his agents of judgment. So now you've got the prophet Isaiah, who's still tasked with the the job of speaking God's word to God's people, but now that warning is going to fall on deaf ears. First, because of Israel's unfaithfulness. They don't want to hear it, but now they're not going to hear the word because God has pronounced judgment and is determined to follow through on it. They will hear that word from Isaiah. They will not respond to it because first, they rejected the Lord. Second, God has rejected them. In other words, God's going to use their rejection to accomplish his sovereign purpose. So when we think about Jesus' explanation this way, Jesus is telling us that he teaches in parables because he has been rejected by Israel's leaders. Remember, that's what we saw last week at the end of chapter 3. We saw it all through chapter 2. Everywhere Jesus turns, he faces opposition, hostility, outright rejection. And it was an intense rejection at the end of chapter 3 when they said he was demon-possessed. So they've already chosen their way. They've already rejected Jesus. That's why he teaches in parables because now these parables serve a unique purpose to further blind the leaders to the truth so they will inadvertently fulfill God's plans of salvation by killing Jesus. Are you with me? 
Jesus teaches in parables to those who will hear and believe and to those who have rejected him and hate him and want him dead. And his teaching in parables further angers them and further pushes him towards the cross. So he teaches in parables to people who reject him in order that he might lay down his life for sinners like you and I. And here is the grace of God dripping off the page for sinners like us, that he won't let rejection be a reason to not follow through, but he will use it to fulfill his beautiful and divine purpose. So you might identify yourself among the bad soil. And you might think for a moment, if that's true, then what hope is there for me? The hope that's there for you is in the Christ who went to the cross and died in your place. All of Satan's schemes, all the desires of the world, all the sins of mankind, all of our rejection of him, he dies so that all the sins and blasphemies of man can be forgiven. There's hope for you in Jesus Christ. It's not to you to pluck the thorns or to remove the rocks. It's yours to receive the word and believe in the one that loves you and believe in the one who died and rose again so that your salvation might be finished accomplished. He loves you this much. He will use the rejection of his own people to accomplish the salvation of those on the outside. So I hope this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you'll see the immense grace of God. This parable is not meant to beat you up or say that you're going to be left on the outside. It's meant to call you to hear the word of God, believe in the one who died so that your life might bear fruit for his glory and the sake of his kingdom. There's why Christians shouldn't be discouraged because God's word never, never fails. God's word is grace to those who are lost, those on the outside. Third and finally, God's word produces results. God's word produces results. Verse 20, Jesus talks about the good soil. He explains it. He says, Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. Quiz time, you're on Jeopardy, and Alex Trebek says the category is Mark chapter 4. And the question, or the answer, is this. uh, How many soils are in the parable of the sower? And the person next to you buzzes in and says, four, and Trebek says, wrong, And you buzz in and you say, six, and that's correct. There are three bad soils and there are three good soils. And those three good soils are marked off by their yield. 30-fold, 60-fold, even 100-fold what was sown before. Jesus gives us this perfect balance in this parable. Three bad soils, three good soils. Now, what are we supposed to do with these numbers, these yields? What are they telling us about fruitfulness. Well, it depends on who you read. You read one person and they're going to say, well, those numbers, 30, 60, and 100-fold, that's just, that's expected in farming. You, you get that sort of return on your, on your harvest and, and that's just common. So they would say, this is just telling us um, fruitfulness is expected. The seed gets planted, it's going to bear fruit, that's it. Others, you read someone else and they'll say, ah, those numbers 30, 60, 100 fold, they're telling you this is a miraculous return. 
This is supernatural. And so when we plant the Word, when we sow the Word, we ought to expect this supernatural, miraculous response. Here's what I know from having spent a little bit of time in Kansas. A shock of wheat, a head of wheat on one single stalk, that head is called the shock. And a shock of wheat will produce about 20 to 30 individual grains. One seed produces a 30-fold return on an average basis. If a farmer had a stalk of wheat that had 60 or 100-fold, one, the stalk wouldn't be able to hold it up. It would fall over. And it would be an unbelievable miracle. He would call all of his farm buddies down at the co-op, come down and look at my wheat. This is unreal. It would blow their minds. So what's Jesus telling us here when he gives us 30, 60, 100 times? I think Jesus is telling us that we ought to expect fruitfulness when the word is planted. And every bit of fruitfulness, every bit is supernatural in the result. It's amazing when the word of God awakens spiritually dead people to spiritual life. It's always supernatural. So, isn't Jesus saying something here about the power of God's word? That in the face of birds and rocks and thorns, the word of God still produces a harvest. And in fact, the gospel flourishes in hard places. That's its very nature by default. When we talk about the word flourishing, the word uh, returning a harvest, what is it exactly we're talking about? Well, in one sense, we could be talking about a harvest of souls. Those who hear the word and believe the word and are saved by Christ. But in the Old Testament, if you go back again to Isaiah chapter 5 and 6, Fruitfulness was defined by covenant loyalty, faithfulness. So fruitfulness looks like a lot of things. Yes, it's a harvest of souls, and it's a harvest of righteousness in your life. It's living the life of Christ in the here and now. It's being a peacemaker. It's forgiving those who wrong you. It's being meek. It's showing mercy. It's enduring persecution. That's what this fruitfulness looks like. When God's word is planted, it yields a harvest, a supernatural harvest. It always produces results. Do you know how the word of God fails? There is a way it can fail. The only way the word of God fails is if it's not spoken. That's it. Let's say you share the gospel with a friend who rejects you and calls you names and curses you. Jesus says, Blessed are you (laughs) when they persecute you, revile you, call you all sorts of names. You're blessed. So you've won. You've been blessed in the obedience. And then there are times you speak the word, and that word finds rich soil that God has cultivated, and a harvest is reaped. It's amazing. The only way we lose is if we don't share the word. So this morning in the parable of the sower, there's encouragement for Christians who are facing difficulties and discouragement. God's word is never silenced. God's word is grace to those on the outside. And God's word produces results, always produces results. It does not fail. If you ever find yourself in Kansas, a place for you to visit is a town called Hutchinson. And in Hutchinson, they have a salt mine. You go through a safety training video You put on a hard hat, you get in some big industrial elevator, 
and you plunge into the depths of Hades beneath the surface of the earth. And when that elevator opens up, deep, deep below ground, you are in this incredible salt mine. It used to be, still is active. They're still taking salt out of it, but now they've turned it into a tourist attraction. And now also it's become a, a place for storage. So Hollywood sends all their films and all, their, all these things because the, the temperature stays the same, humidity is the same. It's perfect to keep things stored safely for years and years. It's a really cool place to go check out. And when we were on our tour, we're on this little tram for a part of it, and uh, the tram has lights attached to it, and our tour guide has a, a big floodlight, and he takes us down this one tunnel where they used to harvest the salt from, and they stop it, and he says, all right, I want everyone to be calm because we're going to turn out the lights for a second. Boom, turned out the lights, and we were in total darkness. You, you couldn't see a thing. There was no ambient light from anywhere else. You couldn't see your hand on your face. You saw nothing. And all of a sudden, I realized how much I love light. <laughs> what a miracle light is. Well, then he, he turned the lights back on. It was just for a few seconds. It wasn't long. But when he turned them back on, I was so happy. Everyone else was so happy. For a moment, you're thinking, what if the lights don't come on? How will they find us? But the lights came back on, and, and we went on. And I didn't take it for granted again that we had this light. You know, the, the parable of the sower is like light in oppressive darkness. It fills disciples with encouragement, hope, endurance, Sure, there may be a lot of darkness around, and sure, that darkness might be intimidating and scary, but we have power in the Word of God that pushes back the darkness, doesn't just push it back, but overcomes it and ultimately does away with it once and for all. So brother and sister, be encouraged. The fields are white unto harvest, and it is time to go to work. Let's pray. So Father... May those who have ears to hear receive your word this morning. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are facing discouragement and struggles for any number of things. Father, for our church, as we collectively face challenges, conflict, difficulties, let us be a people who in the midst of all of that continue to yield fruitfulness, to bear fruit in the midst of every situation. So would you lift the spirits of those who are struggling this morning, who came in here limping, and would you give them an immovable confidence in the victory of the cross and the power of this word. And Lord, give us voices to tell the story, to announce to the world your goodness, your grace, your love, your never-ending faithfulness, May our conflicts be platforms from which the gospel is proclaimed broadly. For any of our friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, God, I'm so grateful that you brought them for this moment. That even in the telling of this parable today, the word is planted once again. Father, may that word find good soil. May they turn to you in faith and trust. Lord, give them strength Encourage in the face of Satan's lies and all the conflicts they will have to endure. But Lord, let them run to you today for their salvation 
and for the new life that's found in Jesus Christ. That their lives would bear fruit for the kingdom and for your glory. Father, thank you for your word planted in us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.